We should indeed keep calm in the face of difference and live our lives in a state of inclusion and wonder at the diversity of humanity as we embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 215 of Embrace the Void, where we are way too far in the weeds to be meta. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got a discussion that makes me deeply thankful to our patrons who make researching for this show possible and thankful to the community of people with much more scientific expertise than me that I can reach out to on stuff like this. So let's make with the details. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Jesse Single co-host of the Blocked and Reported podcast and a contributor at the New York Mag and a range of other places, including Substack. Jesse, would you like to say hi to the voids? Hello. I'm uh, shouting to the void my hello. It's okay. You can talk normally, but if you prefer okay. to shout, it's, <laughs> well, it was a void. It was a void, so I figured the acoustics. Actually, I guess the acoustics are good yeah. in a void. It depends on the kind of the void. So, we'll oh see. yeah, you can get a killer echo, and, and we're <laughs> used to it. There's a lot of things to shout about these days. True. So. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and talk. Before we dive into our material today, I wanted to give folks a chance who might not be familiar with you uh, and your work. Do you want to give folks a sense maybe of your sort of political, philosophical, personal, any kind of background that you think will be relevant to what we're discussing here today? Yeah, I'm a, uh, a hardline Islamic fundamentalist, so this should be okay, an interesting great. chat. Uh, no, I, I'll i just sort of give my journalistic background. I was at New York Magazine for a few years. I ran a vertical dedicated to social science, and I did a lot of sort of debunking there, behavioral science in particular. And I wrote a book called The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills, uh, sort of just about like the TED talkification of behavioral science and why we shouldn't think that like cute tricks uh, developed developed by Ivy League professors can fix like the education gap and, and more structurally mm-hmm. rooted problems. I also, I, I believe I'm here today because I also did a, I'm going to put it in air quotes because I, I think different people saw it in different ways, but definitely controversial to some. Uh, Atlantic cover story, when children say they're trans, it's about sort of the process by which uh, clinicians determine when kids should go on hormones and blockers. And by kids, I mean, there's a lot of confusion even over the age thing, but this this wouldn't happen before age nine or 10, usually blockers and then hormones. And um, yeah, and I, I, I've written a fair amount about 
sort of youth gender dysphoria. I've tried to Mm -hmm. stay away from like the more culture war stuff. I I am interested in the question of like assessment and, uh, you know, the stuff we'll talk about later on. But I I think that's, you know, the stuff I've written that uh, that's why I'm here, I believe. Yeah. So there's two questions there for me. One would be, uh, you know, as you say, you've taught, you've written quite a bit on this gender intervention for young people kind of issue. And I personally, you know, I don't think it's wrong to pick a beat in the culture war or not, or, you know, in the gender gender debates or anything and, and sort of walk that beat. But I'm curious, you know, why did you end up, do you feel like walking this and why do you feel like you continue to spend a lot of energy in this area? Is it sort of a personal interest? Is it that you happen to write that story and then it snowballed and like, why did you end up writing that story? Do you feel like? I think, I mean, in, in journalism, this is often how it works. Like once you write a high profile piece, you're seen as having, (laughs) I think some of your listeners will disagree with this, but seen as having some degree of knowledge and competence. And then other people reach out to you. They have other angles to cover. I've also, over the last few years, I've become really critical of, of my area of, of mainstream progressive journalism and, you know, I'm on I'm on Substack now, but I continue to write and to have access to places like the Atlantic and the New York Times. So I, I'm not really like screaming from the outside. I'd like to still be on the inside. I don't think mainstream journalism has done a good job covering this issue. And I don't really know why I spend time what I spent when like I you know, for a while I was writing about Gamergate and those culture wars in twenty fifteen. It's interesting that like nobody who agreed with me I was very critical of Gamergate. No one who agreed with me about Gamergate was like, you're spending too much time on Gamergate. Why did you choose to write about this? The only people saying that were Gamergaters, that I was like obsessed with Gamergate. So I think I'm in a lucky position that I can basically write about what I want. And I, I think my interests have shifted and will continue to shift. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's interesting because it sort of bears on the second question, which is, as you were describing yourself there, you said you sort of try to stay away from the kind of culture war stuff, like in sort of consuming your content as preparation for this interview. It doesn't come across to me that you're sort of staying away from the culture war. So I was curious if you self-identify as something like anti-woke or skeptical of woke issues, because I feel like a lot of your content is framed within this kind of pushback on, as you were saying, you know, you can frame it as progressive mainstream media being caught up in that particular kind of woke mentality or something like that. But it seems like that is a pervasive theme and maybe is impacting sort of how you're approaching the trans issue in particular. Well, I think it's complicated because like the, my biggest project over the last four years by far was a book that took probably an order of magnitude more time than anything I've written on trans stuff or on um, culture war stuff. So, you know, that, but that doesn't show up on Twitter. People don't, I don't, it's not like I'm not tweeting when I'm mm-hmm. working on the book. So I think people who follow me on Twitter, I absolutely focus more on that subset of issues. And as soon as I said, I, I what I mean by staying away from the culture war stuff, I, I do write about, it. I didn't phrase that well. I, I try not to, I don't like, the framing of like, oh, these crazy woke people and then I'm anti-woke and they're authoritarians and I'm anti-authoritarian. I think like the quickest path to finding yourself like hawking supplements or being a vaccine denier is to be like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm anti-woke now. That's what I'm against. We got, I mean, I've seen examples of this of like, Mm-hmm. You know, they they literally started putting swords in their Twitter bios to show that they're like engaged in some sort of fight. With they allied yeah, with I'm, Donald Trump. I'm familiar Trump. with yeah, Chris Russo's memetics. Yeah. Yes, for sure. And 
I mean, in some cases, including Chris Rufo, I, I think it's a valuable service to like, he, he's in some cases publishing these really ridiculous diversity trainings that public employees have to do. And I think that's dumb. And I'm, I've written a little bit about it, but when you're at the point where you're like, I'm engaged in a saber skirmish and Donald Trump is on my team. I, I just, it gets, it just, it just sort of circles right back into a different kind of tribalism. So I try to stay away from that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that's valuable, and I want to put a pin in that because I think it'll come up later when we talk about the approaches to the portrayal of these different um, studies. So I want to get to the studies, but I also want to be fair and put my own cards on the table here. I'm certainly coming from a sort of woke, sympathetic perspective. I have known and have, you know friends with a, a variety of trans individuals and non-binary individuals and care deeply about the well-being of, of trans youth, both personally and like in, uh, you know, in general. And I'm concerned, right? My concern with your work is I, I worry that it contributes to a moral panic around the treatment that is currently being provided or is likely to be provided to, you know, individuals, young people going forward. And so, you know, given that concern, I was a little hesitant, obviously, to have this conversation because whenever you're dealing with like a moral panic, it, you, as you know, right, it's difficult to debunk that in real time with somebody who spends a lot of time on the subject, right? So I could be, if I'm if I'm correct here, uh, you know, unfortunately giving airtime to someone who I may not be effectively debunking and thereby spreading their information. Um, but that being said, luckily, I think we have two studies that have come out recently that I think provide a really ba- valuable sort of comparison on this issue. We have Turbin's 2021 study about um, uh, trans individuals who experience the transition at some point in their lives, but still identify as trans. And that's on the pro side. And on the sort of anti side, we have the recent Littman uh, study of detransitioners. Um, so hey, I, I'm going to be, yeah. I'm going to be annoying just because I think there's so much, um, I think a lot of the the heat in this debate comes from people not defining their terms. When you say pro and anti, mm-hmm. what do you mean here? Yeah, so it's tricky, right? I think it's correct to say that the Turban study aims to provide evidence that like gender affirming treatment is good and should be more widely available and is generally picked up by the pro trans community as such. Whereas the Littman paper is generally viewed as providing evidence for concern about these kinds of treatments and is generally picked up by the, um, you know, I don't know, what do we want to call it? Gender critical turf, you know, community as such. Right. So that's that's sort of what I mean there. Does that seem fair? Yeah. I mean, I think they're both within those two. I mean, we're oversimplifying already, but that's unavoidable. Well, yeah, We're going to get very deep into both of them for like the next 40 minutes. I just want to sort of give people a sense of where we're going here. Turbin represents the position that um, just about any concerns about youth transition are misguided. And that I think he more or less would side with you that that's like a moral panic you know, MAGA chuds, TERFs, whatever you want to call them, are trying to spread the idea that we should be concerned about these treatments when, as far as he's concerned, the evidence is in, and these are really good treatments, and we shouldn't worry about mm-hmm. them. Um, this, mm-hmm. this, right up to the point of him in one paper, um, talking about one of his own clients who detransitioned, but saying that's not a big deal, it happens. Now, yes, Littman is absolutely serves a similar role on the side of people who are generally more skeptical. Part of the problem is like there's a huge range there. So there's people who respect Lipman's work who 
are okay with right. block uh, blockers, but just think they should be maybe doled out more parsimoniously. And then there's people who I think are opposed to youth transition altogether. But anyway, sorry, I, it's right. useful for me to be right. very specific it's a, about what we're talking about. For sure. It's also important, I think, to, to highlight, as we'll see, that Littman is the originator of the concept of rapid onset gender dysphoria, for which there has been some criticism. And we will talk about that probably as part of her, what she can take away from her particular study. But I do think it's, and again, it's not, inappropriate for a scientist to have a theory and like go looking for data to support that theory but it is important i think for us to note that like that is part of her project right she is trying to develop evidence for this hypothesis about rapid onset gender dysphoria being a problem happening right now yeah i mean as long as we acknowledge okay. that jack turbin has a pretty explicit project of his own so, yeah absolutely absolutely right Right. For sure. For sure. Okay. So, all right. All of that table setting done. Uh, as you are the guest at my table, I would like to give you the opportunity to decide uh, which of these studies you want to dive into real deep first. Yeah. I mean, I, so as I told you when we were warming up, I, I, I'm curious how deep we'll be able to get because they're both sort of straightforward surveys. But I mean, so Jack Turbin took a, mm -hmm. a big sample, I think, there's the uh, United States Transgender Survey from 2015, and he basically, uh, there was a battery of questions about detransition, mm -hmm. and he published a study with some colleagues basically say, showing that among currently identified people, uh, trans-identified people, trans people, uh, mm -hmm. some of them had, uh, I think 13% had reported detransitioning at some point, and then among those who reported mm -hmm. detransitioning, it was mostly for external factors, not because they no longer felt gender dysphoric or no longer felt they were trans. Right. That is my understanding of the study as well. Um, and and my just to add some numbers in there, because sample sizes do matter to some extent, though we'll talk about how much they actually matter. I don't want people to get like a simplistic notion that big sample size equals good, small sample size equals bad. It's more complicated than that. Um, but we should say uh, the 2015 study is one of, or maybe the largest at the time, study of of, of trans individuals. I think it was something like 15,000 maybe. Um, and then the sample size that he's pulling of people who identified as having experienced detransition at some point is about 2,000, I think, or a little more. Um, so yeah, so talking about this turbine I think study, it's about right? 28, the 2015 sample in total is about 28,000. So it's even bigger than you said. Okay, okay, sorry. It's about 30,000, excuse me. I apologize. Um, so... I, I mentioned that, so I think it'd be nice to just sort of say a bit of like strengths and weaknesses of these papers as we're going through. So one strength for this paper in theory is it's a fairly large sample size, right? 2,000 is, or 20,000, excuse me, is, is, is or 30,000 is pretty good, right? Um, that, that being said, uh, it also has in its favor, I think, fairly solid methodological rigor. So if we accept like if we if we bracket off for a second the possibility of it being misrepresented right i think the study itself is fairly good on its analysis um and it's things like its limitation section i think is fairly what what you'd want it to be for a study like this so for example turban says I, i'm quoting here because the usts only surveyed current TGD identified people, transgender individuals. Uh, our study does not offer insights into reasons for detransition in previously TGD identified people who currently identify as cisgender, right? So that's exactly the sort of um, caveat that you'd, you'd, you'd want to see um, to make sure that you weren't sort of overgeneralizing from the study. Does that seem fair at least? That seems fair. I think. Um... 
the USTS itself has like pretty major sampling issues. Uh, yeah, and, and I want to talk about that for okay, sure. Too. Sure, and then and then methodologically. They're transparent about this, but the battery of questions, it was a multiple choice or you can write in like why you detransitioned. Mm-hmm. More than 90% of the options they give refer to external factors. So mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's mm-hmm. not yep. good. If you're trying to get like, get a fair assessment of why people detransition, then the vast majority of the options. So, but again, it's mm-hmm. like, I, mm-hmm. If it's a survey, I think that's more forgivable in a survey of currently trans people, but I still think you can't, like the caveat you just mentioned, that's great they said it, but my one of my qualms about the coverage of this is that it's then mm-hmm. yep, not represented sure. in the media with those caveats. So anyway, we can get to that. No, I think that's exactly correct on all, like all of the sorts of things um, that I want to include in here as well. So, you know, when you look at the question, it is true there is a concern with sam with studies that like if you front load a bunch of or you know in certain ways if you frame the particular choices that can impact the um the way that the respondent answers the question um but as you say it's also difficult right to write these things in a fully neutral kind of way and I, at least i would say i think this is a problem that either is a problem for neither study or both study that we're looking at here today because some of the questions from the Littman study could similarly i think be highlighted as, as like leading questions in terms of the options that are provided so i think it's, it's a good it's a good concern to raise though i think it probably at least applies to both of them i don't if if Littman had offered a list of items and 90% of them were like, uh, my parents fooled me into thinking I was trans. I would be very harsh on that. Littman's study does not do that. It offers a range of options, but I'd have to, um, I mean, we can look at it at the time. I don't think that, I don't think they're, I, I don't want to, I, I think we, we broadly agree on most of this and I don't want to get cut off in the particular particulars. I just want to note that, that giving people mm-hmm. at the zoomed out level, there's two, there's two hypotheses about why people didn't detransition. And often it can be a combination of both. One is they're not really trans. One is they're really trans, but society's preventing them from being trans. Uh, mm-hmm. And to, to do a survey item where 90% of the options they're presented with other than write in point to one of those is, is like, I think that's pretty bad methodologically. Yeah. I think it's certainly a concern and I think you'd want a better, a more robust question set there. And then you'd also want a question that's like, you know, that, that identifies individuals who do now identify as cis and, um, you know, getting more information about that particular subset. Like, I think it's overall, like, I think your criticism that this study presents a high risk of misrepresentation because it's very easy to elide that this is about currently identifying trans individuals who have experienced detransition into, you know, individuals who have experienced detransition, right? And I think, I think it's true that in at least one of the articles that I found when we, you know, I was researching for this, that like when I read it. I didn't catch that. Like I sent it to you and you corrected me because it was not clear in that particular article. Like the article was not written in such a way where it it says it wrong, but it was written in such a way where it's not, it's not very clear, I think. And I, I do think that there is a, uh, with, with this particular study, there is a high risk of misuse in terms of it's easy to uh, use it in that broader kind of context. Yeah, and I don't think that's hypothetical. I've been critical mm-hmm. on Twitter about this. I think Turbin, in a number of interviews, 
either himself, I don't want to say misrepresented, but he, he absolutely presented it in a way or allowed it to be presented in a way where anyone would think that he's come up with data about like permanent detransitioners when this is a very mm-hmm. different population. Right. And it, it is important to note that like, that doesn't mean that this is a useless study, right? There is value in understanding, no, far from it. Yeah. right, the detrans experiences of trans individuals. And I do think like we could, we could say, if we're being generous, that like, it is likely to be that there is going to be some kind of overlap, or, or there may be, I, I should be very careful, right? There may be some kind of overlap between the forces influencing people who temporarily detransition versus the ones that do and continue to detransition, right? Or um, so like, but we don't know, right? We need more information. And in the absence of more information, we shouldn't be making strong claims based on the study. Yeah. I mean, if I'm, if I'm a clinician who works with trans people, or if I'm just a human who cares about trans people, I very much want to know, Mm-hmm. I, again, given the, this this survey sampling issues, I, I don't know how robust a finding it is, but if 13% of people who whose best lives are lived identifying as trans are forced to detransition at some point, that's very bad, and we should look into, mm-hmm. why, look into why. Okay, I agree. And since you mentioned the data set, I think this is also important as a good example of the concern of like isolated rigor, right? It's not... It's not we can't just look at the turban study and say his methods are good, therefore his conclusions are good. If the data is bad, right, it's garbage in, garbage out. So it is a fair point, I think, to be concerned whether or not the 2015 study that he is drawing from also has good methodology. It's a little bit, I think, beyond the scope of what we can uh, get into here. But I wanted to give you a chance at least to sort of explain roughly what you think some of the the good concerns are with that particular study. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's basically a lot of sampling issues. My understanding is just sort of an, an anonymous. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some similarities with the Lippman one, which we'll get to, but it's basically just, um, you know, spread through sort of LGBT networks, which is fine, but it is a convenient sample. There's some real weirdness with regard to some of the numbers. For example, 73% of the respondents who reported having taken puberty blockers reported doing so after age 18, which is basically impossible because no one no one gives you puberty blockers that late. So a, a, a big sample like this were three quarters of the respondents, three quarters mm-hmm. who said they went on puberty blockers are probably confusing them with cross-sex hormones. Mm-hmm. Sort of it tells you something that's probably not great about the sample. I also, I, I saw, I'm trying to find it in the paper now. I might not be able to. I, I believe they this was sometimes given with like raffles or um, cash prizes or pizza or some kind of prize, which is not great mm-hmm. survey-wise. So. Not uncommon, but it's at least worth noting, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, it, it's, fair, it's all, fairly common to give sometimes give small rewards for people completing surveys or things like that. But it is, a, a, you know, a confound worth mentioning. Yeah, there's also I actually I just just tweeted out a request for this, but some some folks who are uh, they are critical of Turbin. They published either a letter or an article that did a chart showing side by side this sample mm-hmm. versus a different, much more meth. So. I get we should back up. It's very hard mm-hmm. to get big rigorous samples of sort of like underrepresented groups. Like it yes, you can't that is just, an important note, right? For a million reasons. So if I go to a Brooklyn LGBT health center and poll a hundred trans kids who show up there over the course of two weeks, that's that's basically useless data because there's lots of reasons to think trans kids who go to Brooklyn clinics are very different from trans kids in Arkansas. So mm-hmm. 
this this paper or letter I'm referencing did a chart showing that there are huge differences between the USTS and this other prior survey whose name is escaping me. I think it was a government effort. Those include this sample was mud, turban sample. Well, not turbans. He didn't do it, but the sample mm-hmm. turban uses for multiple papers, much younger. Um, just I think a lot fewer of them had gone through any sort of physical uh, transition. I think way more non-binary. The last survey might not have. They might not have even asked non-binary at that point. So it's just there. There are. I, I'm. I don't think it's a great data set. And I think as you correctly said, the fact that it's 27,000 people, the sample size doesn't really get you much more rigor if there's fundamental issues, but we can sort of, um, it's not like Lisa Lippman has, it has a totally representative sample of detransitioners. So these, these issues are going to continue to pop up. Right. Exactly. I think that that's so, and I also, I think, you know, to, to help you out here a little bit, I think it's not quite correct to say that the study you suggested of the Brooklyn, clinic is necessarily useless it just can't be generalized from right it might be Sorry, a very it's good... useless i can't then say 80 percent of trans kids believe x or y i can say within right, brooklyn exactly. at this one clinic laying out how i got that yeah exactly i, I because that. otherwise Littman's study would also be useless because in many ways it, it is very similar to that study right it's just an online version of that to some extent um but we'll get yep. to that in a second i want to say um just a little bit more about the usts study just to, like again Part of this is because leading up to this, you were concerned that I was uh, being asymmetrical in my demands for rigor. And that is a common criticism that I think everybody lobs around at everybody. And so I really do want to show that, like, I take seriously criticisms of the studies that are being used on the quote unquote pro-trans side. I mean, I think other arguments that could be raised is if you and folks like Littman are correct that... Um, individuals who detransition are ostracized from support communities, from trans communities. That would suggest that there would be an undercounting of detransitioners in a sample that is drawing from clinics, right? So that that could be some evidence for undercounting um, in even in this large sample. Um, and that, like, just broadly speaking, that we do need more data on people who currently identify as as cis. Like, that would just be much stronger data than this. Yeah. Okay, uh, great. Was there anything else on the the turban side of things? No, I mean, again, my, my gripes are much more with how it was presented in the media. I mean, the, setting mm-hmm. aside the data set issues, it's just like you this this study. If we're curious about people who detransition because they they don't think they're trans or that they don't think um, their gender mm-hmm. dysphoria was abated by physical interventions, this study I, I think tells us basically nothing. I think it could be useful for other purposes. Yeah, great. And I'm I think it's great that you highlight the the media thing, because one of my major concerns about the Littman study is the way that it is being represented in the media. So I think it's good that we acknowledge that that is a a fair concern on both sides here. Um, So, okay, talking about the Littman study, right, just to give folks a little background. This is a study of a a survey of 100 detransitioners conducted from December 15th, 2016 through April 30, 2017. Um, and I think just up front, right, the points in its favor would be it does aim to study, as we said, cis individuals who have detransitions. Um, and it also, I think... I don't think they all identify as cis for what it's worth. It's I think her only oh, okay. inclusion criteria were folks who at one point went through physical intervention and then... Mm-hmm. They detransition. I, I think some of them detransition to non-binary. I could be. I could be wrong, but yeah. Okay. Okay, that's fair. But at least I would say it's it's trying to get more of a representational sample of individuals who 
and it, it's, it's tricky to use this kind of use the right kind of language here, but something like continue to detransition or have uh, persistently detransitioned or something. I think like they that. say re-identified, meaning they re-identified re okay. usually as a woman, sometimes as something else. Okay, um, so uh, yeah, we'll throw that point out there first. And the other one I want to add is if you do like a side by side on the like written limitations sections in the Turban and the Litman, I think it's fair to say they're at least comparable for the most part, right? I don't think there are glaring huge problems in in one as compared to the other, um, though I think there, there are some differences between them that I'll get into here in a second. So I just wanted to to highlight that I don't think that like Littman is is doing something wrong necessarily on that front, though I do have some other concerns. Um, so let me say this, um, you know, this is being presented as a, a new study. I do think it's important to note that this is research data from five years ago. Um, it is, and, and like that is within the range of normal for like how long it takes to get things published. But I think it's an important thing to note here because there was this dust up over Littman's paper in PLOS in 2018. Um, and, and like, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole or anything, but I do think it's important because this data, um, I think, has sampling problems that are in some way similar to the sampling problems that I think happened, that the people claimed happened with the PLOS paper. And that may be because this data was gathered before that dust up happened. And so there wasn't a correction in the gathering process. Whereas we see uh, there's a new, Littman is now doing another survey um, and she's doing video interviews to uh, confirm the individual's identity and things like that to confirm that they are um, uh, selectable for the study, which to me suggests an improvement in methodology. And I think means that, that papers based on that data will be more significant than this paper was. Um, but I just think it's important because from a rep media representation perspective, when people see new study, I think they assume new study that is improved upon from the previous study in terms of any kind of criticisms that that, that previous study faced. Does that well, I mean, they, seem fair to note? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, that one difference between the two is the last one was of parents. This is of people who actually think they went through the experience in question. I think in both cases, she's trying to get information about specific groups who believe certain things are going on. And there's like, all you can really do is like find online communities where people are talking about it. It would be different from a detransition perspective if like, if American gender clinics kept better data, she could maybe find detransitioners that way, but basically none of them do. There's just been this like horrific paucity of any sort of like published data. So I don't, I just don't think, you know, assuming as we both do that she's allowed to study detransitioners and she's allowed to study parents mm -hmm. who think their kids are ROGD. I've just, I've heard a lot of, um, to me, overheated claims about these problems with her methodology, in including like a major gender clinician saying her that sampling these ROG parents was like sampling white supremacists. And having talked to some of them and having regularly heard from both detransitioners and parents who think, I don't think they know, but think their kids have something like ROGD, I, I just, I continue to fail to see anything wrong with this. If we're, especially if like, there are still be people still publish studies that are taken from samples of parents uh, who say mm -hmm. they have trans kids. It's it just, you can't mm -hmm. say one's allowed, but the other's not allowed. 
so so I think you're right that this one does not have the the potential problem I'll say of the other one where you're studying you know parents versus the actual detransitioners themselves right I do think there is some concern I'll get into some details here in a second about the the way that they went about finding the groups that they were sampling from and the lack of information about who came from which groups which I think is really important if we're going to make any sort of inferences from this study um but again as you've mentioned it is very hard to find reliable um you know data on this and it's partly hard to track down these individuals as, as is often the case with vulnerable and marginalized communities so while this is a study of you know, it's only a 100 person survey um, that may be substantial for this community's size. So I don't think people should look at the survey and say, oh, it's only 100 people. It necessarily is meaningless. Right. Um, there are a couple of oddities. You know, so you mentioned sort of anomalies in the uh, other data. I think it's interesting to note there's at least one weird thing about this study, which is they got 101 surveys and dropped one of them, which is uh, it's not impossible. Right. That they got 100 really good surveys and one bad one but it seems a little weird um and it suggests a potential concern right that they weren't sort of rigorous enough on vetting the survey responses which is then compounded by the fact that there doesn't appear to have been sort of any kind of quality control or like li fairly limited quality control in terms of or let me say let me put it this way it's not clear what the quality control was on this survey it's not made clear you know, what things were dropped and, and why and what they were doing to make sure that they weren't getting sort of fake responses, essentially. What what such safeguards were in place for the, the USTS, which is a much bigger and more prominent study? Uh, my understanding, and they have like a, several pages of their attempts to try to do this sort of stuff, that they at least tried to like verify to some extent the information of the individual, of the individual's were presenting. I, I could be wrong on that, but that was my impression. But I do at least think it's fair to say, especially, and, and like the thing is, a lot of these are like factors that when combined together create a concern. So it's like, you know, yes, anonymous surveys are used online with, you know, and they're some to some degree accepted. There is a higher concern when you're looking at something like this particular issue that you may be getting a higher risk of false positives or ideologically motivated, um, you know, uh, survey results essentially. What, and I, I want to, yeah. But what's your definition of ideologically motivated versus, so the 2015 yeah. USTS was snowballed through, uh, liberal LGBT groups. Is that not mm -hmm. ideologically motivated responses? So it depends. I think what those, how those ideal, how those groups were sort of, organized right it, like if it, if it was focused in for example on a small subset of like very radical lgbtq groups for example that would be different than if it was just like you know the broad lgbt group uh, uh, the broad group at a particular college right i think we can say those things are different and like she makes a similar distinction i think in her paper where she like says look we tried to go to like neutral places but we also were like on reddit and on detransitioner blogs my concern is that she doesn't really well highlight in there the nature of those detransition blogs and reddit websites um and i've done some research and i have some concerns uh based on what i found about where these things were actually being provided and how they were being provided so if i can get into that a little bit unless you want to say something there first 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the USTS, and they so they would remove folks for not. They did a very basic pass where they removed duplicate or incomplete responses, or only 53. If the claim is there wasn't enough quality control, look at it this way: total initial sample of 39,000, almost 40,000. Grand total mm-hmm. of 53 removed for illogical responses. So that's like less than 1%. Well, I, mm-hmm. I just infinitesimally low. And they kept in all the kids who said they took puberty blockers after age 18. Mm-hmm. So there's no mm-hmm. there's no quality control there. There might okay. there might be a problem with both is all I'm saying. Okay. I think that's fair. I think that's fair to say. And I... um. I didn't get far enough into the weeds to, to know enough about the quality control. No, I mean, I had to, to be fair, I had to pull it up right now and, and find that part. Cause I wasn't sure either, but that's just, that's what they right. say. But let me, let me dive in here about why I'm a little particularly concerned about the Lippman study. So I found some folks who were, who actually took the study when it was being put out at the time and expressed concerns about it um, at the time, specifically that it was, it appeared to be being um, heavily circulated amongst, I guess what were called radical feminists. Though I, I think, that that is a complicated term to be using for these individuals. I think a lot of folks would identify them as TERFs or something like that, a fairly extreme viewpoint. So I, I, I wanna, I'm going to get way too far in the weeds here, but I just want to help people try to uh, understand what I was finding, right? Um, I found at least one case where I think there is at least reasonable concern, I can't say for certain, right, that someone either associated with the study or definitely in contact with somebody who was doing the study set up what I would consider a strongly ideologically coded group as a place to solicit responses for this study. Um, so the evidence, and I'll, I'll link all this in the show notes, is this is a group called Dysphoric Women on Reddit. It was created December 13th, which is two days before the survey opens, uh, or, or maybe, actually, maybe, that's actually weird dates. Uh, yeah, right. And then the survey is added one day later. So I'm wondering if they have a, a mistake on their data thing. Anyway, within a day, essentially, of this group being created, the survey is added to this group. Now, this group had um, a very short lifespan, as far as I can see. It was pretty much only around during the time of this study. It had a total of 12 posts in it with topics like rejecting the gender cult, how transgender ideology mimics totalitarian pseudoscientific religious movements. Um, now, it wouldn't be unusual for a researcher to set up a group to study their, uh, a hard-to-reach community. That's common. But ideally, you'd want to set up the group in a way that was neutral so that you didn't sample your, you know, like risk your biasing your sample by pulling in a specific kind of ideology. Now, I understand they're trying to get people with a wide range of ideologies, but I do think there's a concern that we don't know how many people came from this kind of community versus other kinds of communities. And I just want to highlight here in the description of the group, right? It says that members affirm, among other things, the mainstream trans movement is fundamentally dishonest about transition, alternative treatments, and potential causes of dysphoria, and mainstream trans advocacy works against females' best interests, right? So I guess I'm curious, do you feel like there is at least some reason to be concerned without the access to the raw data that like it's possible that they highly oversampled members of this particularly sort of extreme, some would argue, uh, subset of the detransitioning community? Uh, I mean, the short answer is not really in the same sense. I wouldn't 
you know, I, we don't know where the, the people from other surveys come from. I just, I would want there to be consistency here, but I just want to make well, sure but, I'm understanding. But we do that, know a little bit about where this where people come from in the survey because she did include in the survey that there's a breakdown of how many people came from detransition blogs versus from Reddit. What we don't have is the information about, was that a multiple choice question or was that a fill in the blank question that they then coded for? If it was a fill in the blank question, then we might have more data that isn't being presented here about where these people actually came from that is being obscured by generalizing to Reddit group versus detransition blog. I've read at least some of most of the, like the big studies in sort of the trans health space that rely on this sort of sampling. And, and it's not standard for, to give a really detailed breakdown of exactly what websites, like I, I do think there's sort of the risk of, um, asymmetric standards of, of, of rigor here. But that being said, I'm, I'm positive. It's the case that among detransitioners, some of them have, uh, beliefs on this stuff that, that would sort of offend me or that I would find too far in, in that direction. Um, uh, but I, I guess I, I try to look at this, like if, if you're going to survey people, the two are, the two are so different. Cause one's like trying to be a big somewhat representative survey, even though they acknowledge it can't be. The other is of a very particular population. I think any survey of a very particular population, they're going to have their political quirks. And my sense is that a subset of detransitioners like come to have real resentment because they feel they were mistreated either by the trans community. And of course, I'm not saying like the average trans person treats detransitioners poorly. I think this is mostly just online bullshit dynamics. They think they were either mistreated by the online trans community or by clinicians who they viewed as sort of like mm -hmm. too pro-transition or, or too narrow-minded in their uh, advocacy of transition. So I just, I don't think it's fair. Like if you're looking for a group of people who feel like they were wronged by the medical system and then you're going to nitpick them for, in some cases, maybe having uh, the wrong politics, I just... A, no, I no, don't, no, 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 that's, yeah. that's not what I'm going for here, though, yeah. right? It's, it's not at all that I'm trying to say that those people don't get to have a voice. It's, what I'm saying is I'm concerned that the paper obscures the possibility that there is a substantial ideological oversampling going on here. And, and, and I think the data actually substantiates a little bit the concern. So, for example, in their results, they found that 60 out of 100 respondents said that their detransition was motivated by a change in beliefs about what it means to be male or female, which is sort of the central one of I think one of, if not the central sort of ways that um, the radical femme and I, again, I can try to confirm this with somebody who took the study and was in these communities at the time, the way that they approached encouraging, you know, people who were in, considering detransition was talking about how, well, you can expand your definition of male and female so that you can do X, Y, Z while not having to be transitioned or something like that. So I, again, it's not wrong to sample those communities, but I think it's very important that we under, that like it not just be, you know, generic ideal, you know, uh, detransition blog, but like, is this a detransition blog like Stella, where it does tend to promote a specific ideology, and that would have, it seems to me, significant implications for claims like the ones you put forward and that she puts forward about, you know, the higher, uh, there's a higher, likely a higher rate of detransitioners because of the low reporting to people's clinicians and things like that. Well, I mean, so I... Part of the problem is here is we have no, we have no data on what the detransition rate is. Like we don't even have anything that could get us close in the states to having um, 
I, I think what you're referencing is there's this, this one po- non-peer-reviewed poster out of the UK of the NHS system that generated like a, a, a regret rate of under 1% by searching patient files for words like regret and detransition. And, and to me, that's like, it, it just, it sort of makes such perfect sense and jibes with like interviews I've done with detransitioners that when they feel like they were mistreated by their clinicians, they're not going to go back. They just sort of fall out of the system. So I just, mm-hmm. I just think that like, if we want to get something like a reasonable estimate, uh, we can't rely on studies like that. I also, obviously, you can't rely on a study from a totally different country with a nationalized healthcare system to tell us anything about this one. So mm-hmm. um, I guess I just don't think Littman's sample is or pretended to be representative. And I think in, in much the same way, if you think it's important to study the parents of kids you think have ROGD, your first stop is going to be at communities of ROGD parents. And they're definitely going to have different different beliefs on some fronts that's not surprising i guess i guess the problem is like you know you could argue so like for me when i saw the fact that most of them hadn't hadn't um gone back to their clinicians i was like oh and i tweeted about that because that did jive with like my anecdotal reporting we don't know if that's a representative fact about all detransitioners i'd say it's like a little hint that should not like in a Bayesian sense, it should like shift our priors a little bit, but not a lot. That's my, so this is my point of concern, right? You posted that in, in your tweets, right? And it would, you put a giant exclamation point next to it, right? That was like, this is a big, important data point. And in that particular tweet, like later tweets down that thread, you certainly said, look, this is not a representational sample, though. I, I think you didn't say it quite strong enough. I'll be honest. I think you qualified it in such a way where it was very easy for folks to, take the parts of that tweet storm that like are these big meaty to pull, you know, statistics and ignore all of this. And like, that was what was happening in the retweets. And I think, you know, you can look at it that like people pick are picking up this study and wildly misrepresenting it and treating it like it is representational. And like, it's a bombshell about, you know, rather than what it is, which is a very small preliminary study for which we can't infer much of anything unless we can get access to the raw data, which I haven't been able to get access to so far. And we don't have a complete set of the questions. So like, those are, I think, major problems. And I think what, what I'm concerned with is you're, you've, you've, you sort of accused me of this asymmetric thing. I think you're doing that exact thing when you are very critical of the Turbin study, but are generally, I think, far less critical of this Littman study. And, and also, and this comes back to the conspiratorial moral panic thing. In that same tweet storm, you didn't just say, well, these are all, you know, like, you know, uh, preliminary studies, you said this study is much, much better than the Turbin study, which I don't think you can substantiate. Like, I, I think side by side, they are at least both. Oh, for no, like, no, for studying, for, for studying detransitioners, it, it's definitely better because one I, I, dis- I, I disagree. I mean, it's, okay. it's bad. It's bad in different ways is what I would say. Right. I think it's difficult to compare them, but there's no sense in which it's much, much better. But anyway, the second half of that tweet was I'm sure mainstream media outlets will immediately begin trying to destroy it which is where I get a lot less sympathetic to your position because that sounds like genuinely very conspiratorial to me. How would you distinguish between that tweet and something like Brett Weinstein saying, here's another ivermectin study, but you know the mainstream media is going to destroy it? I, I'm i not sure how to answer that because all the like, ivermectin the studies are very bad. The, di- the difference is that I've been like reporting on this stuff for a few years. And I think their journalism on it is really awful. And I think the reason I'm hung up on the turbine stuff in the USTS is because 
um, one of one of his studies concerned suicide, which is like just about the most important thing you can study. And what media outlets, including the New York Times, the way they misrepresented that study, just sort of it's like my my well of faith is very close to running dry that mainstream outlets can cover any of this honestly and accurately. And seeing, uh, I don't know, man, seeing a study on on youth suicide get mangled that badly really pissed me off. And so that when I say things like I don't think, I I just think I don't trust media outlets to cover this stuff accurately. It's basically what it comes down to. And I think there's some there's some exceptions. Um, but I mean, that's the problem. There's always exceptions because mainstream media is not a good phrase, right? It doesn't like, does Fox News cover this stuff? Well, of course not. But it's mainstream. Sorry, but media. I usually say I usually say progressive mainstream outlets. But what I mean, I mean, I'm happy to define that. I mean, I, I mean, the Voxosphere and New York Times and Slate and and the, I don't think they do a good job covering it. I just don't. So the difference between Brett Weinstein saying Weinstein, I think it's Stein say the me- yeah. <laughs> it, the media covering isn't covering these ivermectin studies is because he's the the ivermectin stuff if you look into it these are just like way more broken in terms of medical science than anything we're talking about and it's also it's sort of a more concrete question does this thing or does this thing not prevent or treat covid um in my experience outlets won't cover detransition at all or they will cover it only to say detransitioners don't matter or detransitioners are really just sort of a, a a weapon the right uses to hurt vulnerable people. My stance is that like, I, I think we should listen to detransitioners. I, I also, if I had to guess, I don't think they're like particularly low in numbers, but I don't think we have any data on that. So basically okay. I, I would reiterate, I don't think people should trust mainstream reporting on this. And I've written thousands of words laying out why I think that's the case. Okay, but can you understand from my perspective, right, looking at this study, which I think has serious flaws and seeing you sort of pre-budding with claims that, you know, people who disagree with it are just out to get Littman or, you know, like hate what she's trying to say or are part of the mainstream media and are trying uh, to destroy her, right? It doesn't build confidence that you're reporting on it more accurately or something like that. It seems to me that you're doing exactly what you're complaining about your opponents doing and then saying, but they're also doing it. So I'm justified in sort of doing it too here. Um, I mean, I, I think, again, you're talking about a tweet storm where your complaint is I put an exclamation mark on one part of a well, no, no, my, my complaint. My complaint is that there's lots of issues with the way that you framed it. You opened with those giant pull numbers and then talked about how it's not representational and then sort of were dismissive about that and then pivoted to Turban and then put this conspiratorial note on the end of it. Altogether, that is like we've been trying. Can we pull up the tweet storm so I can see exactly? Yeah, sure. Um, You know. The reason I bring it up is because I think we have been having a, a usefully nuanced conversation here about the way that media misrepresentation of studies is a genuine problem. I'll put it in the chat for you. Um, well, so, no, I, yeah. I have it up here. And so my second tweet, and again, we should, um, there's probably, we should probably talk about like ROGD and all this stuff. Uh, Cause we may, we may, A, we may well disagree on like my tweet storm. B, it's also possible that I didn't, 
that I didn't tweet well about this because I often do bad tweets. So my <laughs> second tweet, my second tweet, 60% of those in the sample detransition because they now feel more comfortable in their natal sex. 55% said they don't think they were properly assessed and three quarters exclamation mark in parentheses did not inform their mental health clinicians. They had detransitioned. the very yeah. next tweet, very next tweet. This wasn't a random sample. Finding a truly random sample of detransitioners would be almost impossible. But these results run counter to the evidenceless claims that have been spouted by a lot of people who know nothing about detransitioners. So that was my reference yeah. to. Mm-hmm. I'm not pulling that out of my ass. You'll you'll no, no. see. What I'm, yeah, ma- I, yeah, I, I sorry, agree. No, I agree that you made that comment. My concern there is that the the caveat finding a truly random sample of detransitioners would be almost impossible downplays that there may still be genuine concerns about the sampling here, and that when you open with all caps, new research on detransitioners just dropped. And then the second tweet is some really, really potentially bombshell stuff about people not getting properly assessed and not reporting back. I think it would be much more responsible to open with, this is a a 100 person sample. It is uh, potentially compromised in various ways, but it does find these things that are contrary. Like that order of operation, I think matters a whole lot. And you see it in the retweets. Like you see it in the way that people focus in on the tweets that confirm what they're looking for here or the top headlines. And no one is like share, like 18 people retweeted. This is not a random sampling. Like no one is paying attention to that compared to the other stuff in the tweet. And like, here's what I'm saying. I think you are a smart, you know, like savvy individual. And I think you understand this kind of concern. And if you saw this in an opponent, you would rightly criticize it. And so that's why I am saying, I think it's important to be critical of yourself in this particular case. Yeah, I guess I I can think of like mistake. I yeah, I I guess I do get what you're saying, but when there's like a one tweet separation, and when you very explicitly when you lay out the results and then say this isn't representative, here are the cautions. And but you don't I, spend I, any time explaining this is not a random sample, and most human beings have no idea what like any of this means. So like it's your job as a psychom communicator to say this sample tells us nothing about the broader transitional detransition community without raw data and more data, right? More data is absolutely what we need. So all of these, you know, like percentages are, if not meaningless, should be really, really taken with a giant grain of salt. But again, I know, but we're nitpicking over order, but this is a direct quote. A fair number of people seem to wrongly believe this study tells us anything about how common detransition is. It doesn't. Right. That's down at... uh, yeah, right. Can you can you under from my point of view, can you understand how it's like as I told you, so for example, in in a study about suicide, the most important thing you can study mm-hmm. Jack Turbin, whose name keeps coming up, mm-hmm. in a New York Times column, straightforwardly misrepresented what he found about suicide. Like the the worst thing ever, a kid killing themselves. He or a young, mm-hmm. in this case a young adult. There doesn't seem to have been much concern about psychom accuracy, but my tweets were out of order and I tweet 10 should have been tweet five. That's a big deal. Do you understand what I mean by the, uh, the asymmetric thing? No, I don't think that's fair here because I genuinely like have been sympathetic to your criticisms of Turbin. And while this hasn't sure. been my beat, so it wasn't like I was covering this at the time, yeah. right? Like I do think it's fair to raise those kinds of criticisms. What I'm saying is I think, I think you you can also use that critical eye and introspect it and realize, hey, maybe sometimes I am feeding a narrative about 
you know, the way that the liberal media is suppressing the truth about trans youth that is causing massive widespread harm, even if you and I want to get here to our policy stuff here in a second, so I'll get us off the Twitter stuff. But like, I don't think that you have particularly like extreme policy conclusions, but I also think you're out of step with the way this stuff is being managed by like the actual majority of, of tra anti-trans activists who are like trying to pass laws that make it more difficult for individuals to get the kind of treatment that it seems like all of these studies suggest they should be getting more rather than less, right? Whether that treatment is more help um, understanding their condition or whatever, like the result should not be more gatekeeping, it seems like, by legislation or something like that. I guess it's just like in, in 2019, before anyone was writing about this, I did a newsletter explaining why those laws are a bad idea, where I quoted mm -hmm. two leading gender clinicians. So mm -hmm. I, I don't really know okay. how, what to do. Yeah, so... No, I mean that's that's a fair thing to put up. So let's get let's get to the policy a little bit, right? I think we've I think we've done a fairly good job here diving deep into those two. Uh, I again like I was telling one of my teachers that I was gonna be doing this on a podcast, and they're like, who would listen to that on a podcast? Um <laughs> so but if anyone who's still listening, right, let's talk about policy here a little bit. Um my takeaway from listening to you talking to folks like Dr. Anderson is that you are genuinely concerned and recognize that there is a risk that this kind of research and horror stories about detransition could be used as gatekeeping. So do you want to like elaborate on that concern a little bit and how you avoid that with what you're trying to do? Well, what do you mean by gatekeeping? Well, so what you said in the quote, I'm, I'm pulling a quote here from that um, interview, I think it was around 30 minutes or so here, um, that some people will use horror stories about detransitioning to try to prevent people from get transitioning in the first place, a kind of gatekeeping for access to this kind of treatment. And that you said, as far as I could tell in that episode, that you recognize that you have been criticized for that some, and that that was sometimes potentially a fair criticism. So I was just curious if you could maybe elaborate on that as a way to get into what your policy approaches actually are. Oh, I mean, yeah, I asked about gatekeeping because I think a lot of this is, a lot of the dispute is between people who, um, are in favor of puberty blockers and hormones for youth in some cases, but one, a lot of people think that at the end of the day, uh, 13 and 14 year olds should basically be able to have full medical autonomy. And that's what I disagree with. And I sometimes see gatekeeping used in reference to 13 and 14 year olds, which I, I really disagree with. Cause I think, yes, you gatekeep 13 and 14 year olds. Um, I'm so since 2017, talking to Eric Anderson and a few other people whose views on this I respect, they're worried that quality control standards in this field are diminishing. And they're worried that a lot of new people, Erica has like repeatedly called it a fad for, for, you know, clinicians without specialized training to get into this, the gender stuff or whatever. And she's worried that a very, um, sort of crimped understanding of what affirming care means has set in where it's not affirming in the sense of like meeting kids where they're at and helping them figure out who they are, but it's affirming of like, yep, you say you're a boy, you're a boy. Let's, let's go with that. And, and I've talked to a bunch of clinicians who are all very pro trans by any reasonable sense of the word who are, who are concerned about that. And I think the combination of that with, we are seeing a lot more referrals to gender clinics around the world. This is obviously a very salient issue in the States. I just think we can have both conversations at the same time. I think the state laws are very bad and ignorant, frankly, and, and often Republican legislation. I mean, I can't imagine anyone I would less want making decisions for a kid 
and their doctor than a Republican state legislator in like Arkansas. Sorry if I sound elitist. We can have that conversation. We can also talk about what these diagnostic standards should look like. And mm-hmm. that's like exactly what WPATH is doing now. They're developing the standards of care eight, and there's a fair amount of activity around what the youth and child guidelines should look like. And and there's legitimate debate within WPATH. So to me, if there's a legitimate debate within WPATH, that's the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, it's sort of silly to say uh, journalists can't report on that debate or express opinions on it. Uh, because that's sort of what journalists do. Yeah, but I think it's complicated, right? Obviously, when you're dealing with a very sensitive topic, there's a higher burden for the journalist to report on it in certain kinds of ways so as to be sensitive to the potential consequences of misreporting. Um, but like, I, I, I am overall I think sympathetic. I, I, think, I think I disagree because I, I've realized, I mean, I had uh, conservatives in an amicus brief supporting these laws referenced my article saying that it it said there was no evidence that transition helps gender dysphoria. Similarly, people on the left have repeatedly said things like the article didn't include any trans voices, which is false, or that it was opposed to youth transition. I do try to write carefully and in a comprehensive way. And and the more complicated, the more fraught the subject, I, I guess I'm, I'm degree, I agree with you. Like if I write about RGD <laughs> or anything in that vicinity, I will have yeah. paragraphs of hedging. But at the end of the uh-huh. day, it doesn't fucking matter because there are political. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem, right? It it helps. I mean, it, it helps, but it doesn't completely. Anyone the can misrepresent everything, and I'm saying it's right. not just it's not just coming from the conservative side. My, I mean, it. So, especially in like it's 2021, everything is weaponized. Everything's turned into a screenshot. I'm not going to stop writing about stuff that a I find interesting and b I find to be not that you're asking me to. Right. Be that I find important because what if someone weaponizes it? The people the people weaponizing it didn't read what I wrote. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I agree with you that like, there's to some extent, no avoiding people weaponizing your beliefs. I have a bunch of weird beliefs about free will that one day will be weaponized against me. I'm sure. Um, So I'm I'm sympathetic. Right. No, I'm I'm a terrible person for a lot of reasons, but that being said, I mean, I do think it does mean that there's like, you have to be very careful about what you are writing to at least reduce the risk, right? To make it not super easy to misrepresent what you're saying, or to at least, you know, raise that bar um, to some extent. Now, so getting, I mean, getting on to the policy stuff, like, I'm sympathetic, at least to the idea that there are, if, if there are more individuals who are seeking care on this front, we need to be putting more resources towards making sure that they are, you know, getting the right kind of psychological care that goes along with this kind of medical care. I mean, my sense is that that shouldn't be a, a particularly controversial claim. But obviously, there is this concern that that could be used as a Trojan horse for gatekeeping, but I I, agree, I understand why there would be sort of disagreement even amongst experts about where that line is. And I think debating where that line is is a reasonable thing um, that people should be doing. But again, I, the solution there seems to be more resources for, you know, proper like clinicians who are trained experts on these particular issues, yeah. which just seems miles and miles away from like anything that is being presented by um, you know, mainstream, other mainstream um, 
trans skeptic activists or something like that, right? It always feels like they're their ideas that we need to be putting the brakes on all of this and like slowing down and like reducing and things like that. Now, I, I think it gets complicated in terms of like, there might be a conflation there between reducing access to the actual treatments versus reducing access to like um, uh, psychological clinicians or something like that. Um, but I just, I do think it is important to be concerned about a kind of Mott and Bailey where there is a plausible position here. And then there is the one that is, sort of dominating a lot of the narrative of the people who are picking up on studies like Littman's. But there, so the, the, that like completely reasonable position you laid out, there's a lot of clinicians and some people within WPATH who do not think counseling should be a part of this. They believe that that is undue gatekeeping and that they, they're right. not like the dominant faction, but they're a faction. That's part of why this is interesting is like, there are people within WPATH who have, who have like, they all have to an outsider impressive looking CVs or whatever, but they they really don't like one another or have respect for their clinical approaches. And to me, you that know, just it's like, like every profession ever to me. No, I know, I know, I know. And you're right. I shouldn't. It's not actually interesting because that's how academia and like science works. But it is interesting in the sense that they have such different philosophies about what um, but care mm. for transgender and gender nonconforming youth should look like. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really valuable point. And then I'll, I want to give you the final word so I can get you to the enlightening round here. But like. One of the narratives that drives me nuts is that academia has lockstep views about any of this. And what you're saying there, I think, is correct, that, like, there is debate about the right kinds of treatment, which reinforces to me that, like, there is not, there. you know, there may be some trends in terms of, you know, new oh, so, approaches. Hey, so, and no, no, I, 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 sorry. I, absolutely, it is the case that you can incur professional damage for saying what I just said. And it just happened to Erica Anderson. I didn't mean to talk over you, but I just, I completely disagree. Mm -hmm. There is a degree of lockstep and conformity in terms of what you can say publicly. So um, Erica Anderson and Marcy Bauer, is it Bauer or Bowers? I should know this by now. Anyway, she's, um, they're both transgender. Bauer did um, Jazz Jennings bottom surgery. Very established, respected trans clinician. They both were quoted in a Abigail Schreier. I'm just going to name drop every person your listeners hate. This was a- I, I appreciate you doing that right at the end of the episode. Thank <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. This was an mm -hmm. Abigail Schreier article uh, on Barry Weiss's Substack. Uh, her her boss, <laughs> wow. is, her boss is Hitler and the ghost of Osama bin Laden. Uh, and they basically- At least we can acknowledge there's a community here, right? Exactly. Uh, it brings people together, the transphobia. They, they, they laid out their concerns. Uh, and I think it's a reasonable article. I think their quotes are all reasonable. Of course, Abigail Schreier likely has some things she <laughs> some, says that people some, don't like. Some bias. <laughs> but, but they've got an absolute pilloried within their communities. And, and Erica has really gotten attacked, like including in like sort of- Facebook groups for professionals. And if you read what she's saying, it's completely normal. So mm -hmm. within sort of public facing academia, other than a, a small number of clinicians who will come forward and express concerns, it's it's completely lopsided. You, you can give public quotes about how we shouldn't have gatekeeping, about how, how you know, five-year-olds always know who they are without any professional consequences. You can get in real trouble for saying the wrong thing about that. So I guess I sound like a consp conspiracy theorist, but that's been my um, experience. So, you know, unfortunately, I, I can't fact, uh, and here we are, right? I can't fact check that uh, particular claim in real time because uh, I've, I spent my entire week on these two studies. Um, but I, you know, I think it's fine for you to put that out there as your concern. And like you've cited uh, public sources, people can go to and fact check them um, yep. and follow up on the episode as as they need to. I, I will say, 
you know, I'm not an expert um, in that area. So it is possible that there is um, some amount of, you know, pushback against individual. I mean, I assume there would be some amount of pushback, but I don't know what amount it amounts to, you know, how much reputational damage is actually being acquired, partly because it's very difficult in our current cancel culture world to assess claims of being canceled in various degrees. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's okay at least to, to have put that out there and we can, you know, people can, can follow up on that as they see fit. Um, Barrywise.substack.com. So, Sorry. Yeah. I just okay, love that yeah. I'm touting a very wise article on your podcast. And, and at least give give me credit, right? All the people that um, I will probably lose for having you on this show, like clearly I'm willing to accept some amount of reputational damage to have this particular conversation. Sure. That just, it, it, it annoyed me a little when you brought that up, frankly, and we're in the, let's do the honesty zone before the enlightenment. Cause it's just like, sure. I, I, I don't know. Like if don't, I'm glad we did this, but it's like, don't have me on that. I don't, I don't mean this in a dickish way. Like I would, if we were in the same city, mm -hmm. I'd grab a beer and talk about this stuff off the record. But like, I don't, I'm glad we did it. I didn't need to come on. I'm glad I was able to, I will always talk to people who disagree with me, but there's just something about like, this will cause me reputational damage. I, I don't think your listeners are so dumb that they're going to abandon you because someone who just has really mainstream views on this came on. I don't know. That just rubbed me the wrong way. I'm just saying, just to Fair exert enough. a little bit of drama at the last moment. That's okay. I mean, I, I think it happened some with Kathy. I don't think it happened um, too much. Um, Kathy but... Young, the Ru the Russian sweetheart? Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun set of episodes. I listened to some of it. I Yeah, I didn't hear the whole thing. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll, I'll wrap it up here. I think this was um, at least a useful back and forth and fair. And um, there, there were many more things that we could talk about, but I need to torture you now. Uh, so this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you a list of things. And you're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? You don't get to hedge. You don't have to define what real is. Uh, just real or not real. Those are your choices. Do you understand? Nice. I do. Okay. So let me check. First of all, is anything real? Yes. Okay. So let's find out what is real. The external world, real or not real? Yes. Real. Real. Okay. Colors, real or not real? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness? <laughs> real. Free will? I was a philosophy major, but I was very bad at it. Free will, free will is not real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Mm. Real. Races? Of genders are real. Uh, real. Species? Real. Morality? Not real. Rights? Not real. Knowledge? Not real. God or gods? Definitely not real. Society? Real. Money? Real. Numbers? Uh, real. Fictional characters? Real. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? <laughs> real. Science? Not real. Natural laws? Hmm. 
Not real. Beauty? Not real. Love? Not real. Causality? Real. And finally, time? Not real. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? Uh, incoherent. That's that's the standard response, yes. So you are you are in the uh, mean uh, range. Good job. It would be interesting to to give that to a bunch of people and then do like some bullshit number crunching and try to correlate it with. Oh, we like have. Per- oh, you have. Okay. Oh, oh we have we have number crunchers. Oh, not personality traits. No, but we've correlated like answers on different parts of it to other answers on different parts. Like which which two things people are most likely to say are both real or something like that. Um, how many people say that uh, God isn't real, but fictional characters are real is one of my favorites. <laughs> I have a whole article about this in my UK skeptic uh, column. About oh, I'm going to read that now. I'm going to read this. that. Yeah, it's, it's a fun one to read after you've been through it. It's an entertaining experience. So, uh, Jesse, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find all of your horrible beliefs one more time? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> not to make a joke here. JesseSingle.substack.com is my newsletter, and BlockedAndReported.org is the podcast. All right. Well, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Again, my sincere thanks to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our all-time top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons. Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, and the Illegal Police Chaplaincy in Covina, California, and the Theocracy Now, Chad T., Jesse Urbinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editors, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast, Give them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter, at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, whoever you are, however you are, you are equally valid, equally justified, and equally beautiful. You are the void. And the void is you.